Hello and welcome back to another episode of Chambers FM. It's your host, Mr. Chambers, back here on a pretty nice Thursday afternoon. Um, we've had a nice couple weather-wise days. The last few days have been out getting some runs in, uh, getting some outside, soaking that in. So I've, I've really enjoyed that. Um, it's been a little while since I've come out with a, a podcast. I know people are busy, have less time to just sit and listen to my ramblings and stuff, but I wanted to come back. Um, for another episode, introduce the next book. We're going to start for our read aloud into the wild by John Krakauer. Um, just to update you guys just a little bit on, uh, what's been happening, what's been going on. Not a ton of huge updates or new information to give to everybody, but I just wanted to check in, um, just see how everybody's doing today. Um, yeah, so sit back, relax and enjoy another episode of Chambers FM. Alrighty, everybody. So, um, as I mentioned to kind of start the podcast, I don't have a ton of things to update you on today. Um, no real changes from the district, from the state. That May 4th day is still the day that we plan on, um, or at least the day that has been given to us right now is the first day we're allowed to go back to school. Um, until that changes, that is, that's the day we have, um, this is week two for the online learning stuff. Um, the only real changes this week, I know um, Friday is a uh, district holiday, so we won't be giving any assignments or anything like that. It might be a good day to catch up on anything that you are kind of falling behind on or failed to accomplish this week. The district did extend the day for work to be turned in to Sundays, which um, I know I have updated in my Google Classroom in terms of when stuff is due. Um, I don't know about the rest of your teachers, but right now I don't care when I get work. I'm not counting off points for it being late. Um, I want it more than, than anything. So if, um, if you need a day or two, if you need a week or two, just, just let me know. Um, I think most people are being pretty flexible in terms of when they are receiving work. I have been updating grades this week. Um, I am almost finished from everything from last week as well as uh, the first two co uh, couple assignments from this week. So uh, just stay posted. Um, I've been sending, I think I'm sending emails um, that, that say, hey, this is your grade. This is what you got. I've had some people comment back and give me some feedback on that. So um, I appreciate all that. I appreciate the communication between you guys and, and letting me know um, when you're having issues and when things aren't working for you correctly, stuff like that. The, um, I guess the only other thing that I wanted to update you guys on is um, that pass-fail is um, kind of the, the big change of the grade book right now. We are moving from a number grade to a pass-fail. Um, if you turn your work in, if you look like you're putting forth some effort, you're going to pass. If, if you do nothing or just very, very little, um, odds are you're going to fail. Um, and I don't know exactly um, what that's going to mean for moving on to the next grade level, things like that. But just, man, just turn your stuff in. I, I've been in contact, I believe, with every one of my students. Um, so I, I, I hope everyone is, is getting their stuff turned in. Um, I know it's it's not ideal to try to work on stuff in a situation like this. Trust me, I am in grad school and, and fighting the motivation to sit down and knock these assignments out in a less than normal uh, structure is strange. Um, I feel like, you know, school stuff should be done at school and home stuff should be done at home and having to mix those two things right now is, uh, it's, it's definitely caused some, some issues, at least in my end. So I am imagining that those same issues are probably popping up on your end. Uh, finding motivation to do, um, what we have to do right now is very difficult, but I've appreciated all the work that people have turned in so far, all the questions. Um, I, I've just been really appreciative and thankful for everyone, 
um, in my class at least, putting forth effort. So um, last thing for the update, I am hosting a Zoom meeting this afternoon at three o'clock. Um, if anyone is interested in, in popping by, it's it's not a homework thing. I'm not teaching a la- lesson or a class or anything like that. Just wanted to, to stop in, give you guys a chance to see other people, um, hear people's voices, see their faces, just, just to kind of check in and check up on people, make sure we're doing okay. So um, that is what I have for the update for today's podcast. Um, up next, we have the first chapter in the first um, little bit from Into the Wild by John Krakauer. So if you're interested in listening to that, our next read aloud, uh, stay tuned. Cool. Thank you, everybody. All right, everybody, uh, we are back with another installment of our read aloud. I hope you enjoyed Jason Reynolds' Look Both Ways. Um, now we're moving on to a book called Into the Wild by John Krakauer. Um, I just want to read kind of the, the inside cover um, as well as the there's an author's note to start the book. Um, and then I'm going to read chapter one today. Um, just a heads up for you guys out there. There is a tiny bit of language in this first chapter. Um, if that's something that offends you, um, I would uh, just skip through just some of this first part. But um, it's not too bad. Just uh, just wanted to give people a heads up in case that would be something to dissuade you from listening to this one. But um, yeah, here we go. So uh, the inside cover says, in April 1992, a young man from a well-to-do family hitchhiked to Alaska and walked alone into the wilderness north of Mount McKinley. His name was Christopher Johnson McCandless. He'd given $25,000 in savings to charity, abandoned his car and most of his possessions, burned all the cash in his wallet, and invented a new life for himself. Four months later, his decomposed body was found by a moose hunter. Um, so as you can probably tell from just that beginning part, um, this is a it's, a it's a real story about a kid named Chris McCandless um, who really just tries, tries to, to set out for himself in the Alaskan wilderness. Um, and obviously, based on that description, it does not go super well for him. Um, and so this book is kind of an exploration into uh, Chris's life, um, as well as what happened when he was out there in the wilderness, what went wrong, um, and kind of really what he could have done differently throughout this whole ordeal. So um, I want to read the author's note before we get going. Um, so here it is. In April 1992, a young man from a well-to-do East Coast family hitchhiked to Alaska and walked home into the wilderness north of Mount McKinley. Four months later, his decomposed body was found by a party of moose hunters. Shortly after the discovery of the corpse, I was asked by the editor of Outside Magazine to report on the puzzling circumstances of the boy's death. His name turned out to be Christopher Johnson McCandless. He'd grown up, I'd learned, in an affluent suburb of Washington, D.C., where he'd excelled academically and had been an elite athlete. Immediately after graduating with honors from Emory University in the summer of 1990, McCandless dropped out of sight. He changed his name, gave the entire balance of a $24,000 savings account to charity, abandoned his car and most of his possessions, burned all the cash in his wallet, and then he invented a new life for himself, taking up residence at the ragged margin of our society, wandering across North America in search of raw, transcendent experience. His family had no idea where he was or what had become of him until his remains turned up in Alaska. Working on a tight deadline, I wrote a 9,000-word article, which ran in the January 1993 issue of the magazine. But my my fascination with McCandless remained long after that issue of Outside was replaced on the newsstand by more current journalistic fare. 
I was haunted by the peculiars of the boy's starvation and by vague, unsettling parallels between events in his life and those of my own. Unwilling to let McCandless go, I spent more than a year retracing the convoluted path that led to his death in the Alaska Taiga, chasing down details of his pre and pre per peregrinations with an interest that bordered on obsession. In trying to understand McCandless, I inevitably came to reflect on other, larger subjects as well. The grip wilderness has on the American imagination, the allure high-risk activities hold for young men of a certain mind, the complicated, highly charged bond that exists between fathers and sons. The result of his meandering inquiry is the book now before you. I won't claim to be an impartial biographer. McCandless's tale struck a personal note that made a dispassionate rendering of the tragedy impossible. Through most of the book, I have tried, and largely succeeded, I think, to minimize my authorial presence. But let the reader be warned. I interrupt McCandless's story with fragments of a narrative drawn from my own youth. I do so in hope that my experiences will throw some oblique light on the enigma of Chris McCandless. He was an extremely intense young man and possessed a streak of stubborn idealism that did not mesh readily with modern existence. Long captivated by the writing of Leo Tolstoy, McCandless particularly admired how the great novelist had forsaken a life of wealth and privilege to wander among the destitute. In college, McCandless began emulating Tolstoy's aestheticism and moral rigor to a degree that first astonished and then alarmed those who were close to him. When the boy headed off into the Alaska brush, he entertained no illusions that he was trekking into a land of milk and honey. Peril, adversity, and Tolstoyan renunciation were precisely what he was seeking, and that is what he found. In abundance. For most of the 16-week ordeal, nevertheless, McCandless more than held his own. Indeed, were it not for one or two seemingly insignificant blunders, he would have walked out of the woods in August 1992 as, anonym as anonymously as he had walked into them in April. Instead, his innocent mistakes turned out to be pivotal and irreversible. His name became the stuff of tabloid headlines, and his bewildered family was left clutching the shards of a fierce and painful love. A surprising number of people have been affected by the story of Chris McCandless's life and death. In the weeks and months following the publication of the article in Outside, it generated more mail than any other article in the magazine's history. This correspondence, as one might expect, reflected sharply divergent points of view. Some readers admired the boy immensely for his courage and noble ideals. Others, others faltimated that he was a reckless idiot, a wacko, a narcissist who perished out of arrogance and stupidity and was undeserving of the considerable media attention he received. My conviction should be apparent soon enough, but I will leave it to the reader to form his or her own opinion of Chris McCandless. John Krakauer, Seattle, April 1995. Chapter 1 the Alaska Interior. April 27th, 1992. Greetings from Fairbanks. This is the last time you shall hear from me, Wayne. Arrived here two days ago. It was very difficult to catch rides in the Yukon Territory, but I finally got here. Please return all mail I received to the sender. It might be a very long time before I return south. If this adventure proves fatal and you don't ever hear from me again, I want you to know you're a great man. I now walk into the wild. Alex. Postcard received by Wayne Westerberg in Carthage, South Dakota.
Jim Gallion had driven four miles out of Fairbanks when he spotted the hitchhiker standing in the snow beside the road, thumb raised high, shivering in the gray Alaska dawn. He didn't appear to be very old, 18, maybe 19 at most. A rifle protruded from the young man's backpack, but he looked friendly enough. A hitchhiker with a Remington semi-automatic isn't the sort of thing that gives motorists pause in the 49th state. Galleon steered his truck onto the shoulder and told the kid to climb in. The hitchhiker swung his pack into the bed of the Ford and introduced himself as Alex. Alex, Galleon responded, fishing for a last name. Just Alex, the young man replied, pointedly rejecting the bait. Five feet, seven or eight with a wiry build, he claimed to be 24 years old and said that he was from South Dakota. He explained that he wanted a ride as far as the edge of the Denali National Park, where he intended to walk deep into the bush, bush and live off the land for a few months. Galleon, a union electrician, was on his way to Anchorage, 240 miles beyond Denali on the George Parks Highway. He told Alex he'd drop him off wherever he wanted. Alex's backpack looked as though it weighed only 25 or 30 pounds, which struck Galleon, an accomplished hunter and woodsman, as an improbably light load for a stay of several months in the backcountry, especially so early in the spring. He wasn't carrying anywhere near as much food and gear as you'd expect a guy to be carrying for that kind of trip, Galleon recalls. The sun came up. As they rolled down from the forested ridges above the Tanana River, Alex gazed across the expanse of windswept muskig stretching to the south. Galleon wondered whether he'd picked up one of those crackpots from the lower 48 who come north to live out ill-considered Jack London fantasies. Alaska had long been a magnet for dreamers and misfits, people who think the unsullied enormity of the last frontier will patch all the holes in their lives. The bush is an unforgiving place, however, that cares for nothing of hope or longing. People from outside, reports Galleon in a slow, sonorous drawl, they'll pick up a copy of Alaska Magazine, thumb through it, get to thinking, hey, I'm going to get up on there, live on the land, go claim me a piece of the good life. But when they get here and actually head out into the bush, well, they didn't like the magazines make it out to be. The rivers are big and fast, the mosquitoes eat you alive. Most places, there aren't a lot of animals to hunt. Living in the bush isn't no picnic. It was a two-hour drive from Fairbanks to the edge of Denali Park. The more they talked, the less Alex struck Galleon as a nutcase. He was congenial and seemed well-educated. He peppered Galleon with thoughtful questions about the kind of small game that live in the country, the kinds of berries he could eat, that kind of thing. Still, Galleon was concerned. Alex admitted that the only food in his pack was a 10-pound bag of rice. His gear seemed ex exceedingly minimal for the harsh conditions of the interior, which in April, still lay buried under the winter snowpack. Alex's cheap leather hiking boots were neither waterproof nor well insulated. His rifle was only 22 caliber, a bore too small to rely on if he expected to kill large animals like moose and caribou, which he would have to eat if he hoped to remain very long in the country. He had no axe, no bug dope, no snowshoes, no compass. The only navigational aid in his possession was a tattered state road map he'd scrounged up at a gas station. A hundred miles out of Fairbanks, the highway begins to climb into the foothills of the Alaska Range. As the truck lurched over a bridge across the Nanana River, Alex looked down at the swift current and remarked that he was afraid of the water. A year ago down in Mexico, he told Galleon, I was out on the ocean in a canoe and almost drowned when a storm came up. 
A little later, Alex pulled out his crude map and pointed to a dashed red line that intersected the road near the coal mining town of Healy. It represented a route called the Stampede Trail. Seldom traveled, it isn't even marked on most road maps of Alaska. On Alex's map, nevertheless, the broken line meandered west from the park's highway for 40 miles or so before petering out in the middle of the trackless wilderness north of Mount McKinley. This, Alex announced to Galleon, was where he intended to go. Galleon thought the hitchhiker's scheme was foolhardy and tried repeatedly to dissuade him. I said the hunting wasn't easy where he was going, that he could go on for days without killing any game. And when that didn't work, I tried to scare him off with bear stories. I told him that a twenty-two probably wouldn't do anything to a grizzly, except make him mad. Alex didn't seem too worried. I'll climb a tree, is all he said. So I explained that trees don't grow real big in that part of the state, that, that a bear could knock down one of them skinny little black spruces without even trying. But he wouldn't give an inch. He had an answer for everything I threw at him. Galleon offered to drive Alex all the way to Anchorage, buy him some decent gear, and then drive him back to wherever he wanted to go. Mm, no thanks anyway, Alex replied. I'll be fine with what I've got. Galleon asked whether he had a hunting license. Hell no, Alex scoffed. How I feed myself is none of the government's business. Fuck their stupid rules. When Galleon asked whether his parents or a friend knew what he was up to, whether there was anyone who would sound the alarm if he got into trouble and was overdue, Alex answered calmly that, no, nobody knew of his plans, that, in fact, he hadn't spoken to his family in nearly two years. I am absolutely positive, he assured Galleon. I won't run into anything I can't deal with on my own. There was just no talking the guy out of it, Galleon remembers. He was determined, real gung-ho. The word that comes to mind is excited. He couldn't wait to head out there and get started. Three hours out of Fairbanks, Galleon turned off the highway and steered his beat-up 4x4 down a snowpacked side road. For the first few miles of the Stampede Trail uh, was well-guarded and led past cabins scattered among weedy stands of spruce and aspen. Beyond the last of the log shacks, however, the road rapidly deteriorated. Washed out and overgrown with alders, it turned into a rough and unmaintained track. In summer, the road here would have been sketchy but passable. Now it was made unnavigable by a foot and a half of mushy spring snow. Ten miles from the highway, worried that he'd get stuck if he drove farther, Galleon stopped his rig on the crest of a low rise. The icy summits of the highest mountain range in North America gleamed on the southwestern horizon. Alex insisted on giving Galleon his watch, his comb, and what he said was all his money. Eighty-five cents and loose change. I don't want your money. Galleon protested, and I already have a watch. Well, if you don't take it, I'm going to throw it away, Alex cheerfully retorted. I don't want to know what time it is. I don't want to know what day it is or where I am. None of that matters. Before Alex left the pickup, Galleon reached behind the seat, pulled out an old bear pair of rubber work boots, and persuaded the boy to take them. They're too big for him, Galleon recalls, but I said, wear two pairs of socks and your feet ought to stay halfway warm and dry. How much do I owe you? Don't worry about it, Galleon answered. Then he gave the kid a slip of paper with his phone number on it, which Alex carefully tucked into a nylon wallet. If you make it out alive, give me a call, and I'll tell you how to get the boots back to me. Galleon's wife had packed him two grilled cheese and tuna sandwiches and a bag of corn chips for lunch. He persuaded the young hitchhiker to accept the food as well. 
Alex pulled the camera from his backpack and asked Galleon to snap a picture of him shouldering his rifle at the trailhead. Then, smiling broadly, he disappeared down the snow-covered track. The date was Tuesday, April 28, 1992. Galleon turned the truck around, made his way back to the park's highway, and continued toward Anchorage. A few miles down the road, he came to a small community of Healy, where the Alaska State Troopers maintained a post. Galleon briefly considered stopping and telling the authorities about Alex, and then thought better of it. I figured he'd be okay, he explains. I thought he'd probably get hungry pretty quick and just walk out to the highway. That's what any normal person would do. This next segment is Made Me Smile. Uh, just to kind of go over a couple things that made me happy, put a smile on my face this week, trying to uh, focus on a little bit more than the negative and everything. Um, I think it's important to kind of highlight um, just the good things that I'm seeing, the good things going on that I'm aware of, things like that. So, um, yeah, man, there is... Uh, so we got an email from Miss Berthold about 8th grade day awards. Um, so I think the plan as of right now is to still have eighth grade day, still reward those people who, um, put in the work this year, who, who would have earned those awards had school carried on as normal. Um, so we've been asked to nominate our students and, and just kind of, uh, she's been talking about some stuff. Now, what that day is going to look like, I have no idea. Um, if we're back in school as normal, I, I think it'll look as close to, um, how it would have originally. Um, but if we are not back in school, I do not know uh, what the future holds for that. I don't know if we're going to try to do a digital one. I don't know if we're going to wait until we get the all clear from local officials and government leaders about when we can actually meet together. So I, I have no idea what it will look like. But um, I think it's cool that despite everything that's happened, um, we still have people who are concerned about making sure people are recognized for all of the great things that they did this year. Um I, I don't know anyone's name who's winning anything, nor have I decided on who is going to receive my nominations, but I, I just thought that was kind of exciting, give us something um, positive to look forward to throughout the rest of the year. Um, I, I have fun every eighth grade day. Um, I know obviously this year it will be just a little bit different, um, but in the past I've, I've really enjoyed it, and, and I've enjoyed um, seeing those kids that get nominated for things. Um, but I also remember what it was like to be a kid that got nominated for absolutely nothing. Um, I gave a speech at eighth grade day last year. It was short um, and impromptu because I didn't know that I was actually going to have to give a speech that day. Um, but I talked about um, how I, I, I mean, I, y'all, I went to Northridge. I sat there for an eighth grade day um, and I didn't hear my name once. I didn't get to stand up. I didn't get recognized. Um, it was, I, I was just kind of blended. I was a pretty average kid. I didn't do anything um, amazing or great. I didn't do the things that I, I should have done during that time to be recognized for things. And, and I didn't deserve to be recognized, but, um, I, I hope that we can make this eighth grade day as special as humanly possible for those people that come out. Um, if you get recognized, if you receive an award, a nomination, something like that, congratulations to you. Um, whatever you have done to receive that, I'm sure you put in a lot of work and dedication and determination in order to be rewarded with something like that. If you didn't get, if you don't get um, recognized for, for anything like that, um, just understand that this is middle school and uh, there are plenty more opportunities in your life to be recognized and um, to do some great things that, that people um, should be aware of. So um, 
Regardless of how eighth grade day goes, I am excited that um, at least like Ms. Berthold, Mr. Davis are still having the necessary meetings to try to keep this tradition alive. So that is what has made me smile over the last couple days. Um, I have zero more information about eighth grade day, so don't email me with questions. Don't bombard Ms. Berthold. Um, but I, I just I think that that's something exciting to keep kind of in the back of your mind over these uh, next couple weeks while we are trapped inside. So. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, That is another segment of Made Me Smile. And that should just about wrap up today's episode of Chambers FM. Um, I want to thank everybody for still tuning in, listening, um, giving me uh, reason for the podcast. We are now over 600 viewers total, um, over spanning all, uh, what, 10 episodes so far. So that's been really exciting. Um, I, I know over the last couple of weeks, you've been given more things to work on, more things to do. So you have less time to tune in and listen to me. Um, so those of you that are continuing to listen, I, I, I appreciate you guys. So thank you. Um, I've been making some YouTube videos as well to kind of give this information in as many ways as possible. So if you haven't checked out those yet, they are on my YouTube channel. Um, and, uh, kind of last thing for today, um, again, I'm hosting a zoom meeting this afternoon at three o'clock. Um, if anyone wants to come in, parents, students, anything like that, just to see some people's faces, I'll be in there saying hi, um, and just checking in, making sure everybody's doing okay right now. Cool. All right, everybody. Uh, this is another episode of Chambers FM. Thanks for listening. Chambers out.